Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Basilica, Director of the Clinical Specialists and Scientists section here at ASHP, and thank you for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional program from the 2022 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. We've taken some time to point out, I'll use the word likely ignorance, to interstitial lung diseases, but I feel it's important that we give ourselves a little grace and mercy related to that lack of awareness. Certainly in the context of the history of interstitial lung diseases, this is a disease state that was first described in the medical literature, not as interstitial lung disease, but as something else back in the 1870s. And if you roll in hypersensitivity pneumonitis, which is an exposure-related interstitial lung disease, maybe back into the 1700s, a review of the history of interstitial lung disease would elucidate that the understanding of the accurate or true pathophysiology, while still unknown, is fraught with assumption. And the nomenclature, as mentioned on the abbreviation slide, is complex or confusing at best. It is important to point out that while we have misunderstood for years and years and years, over the past six, seven years, certainly the past decade, there have been considerable advances made in the diagnosis, understanding the pathophysiology, and then management of interstitial lung diseases, in particular, interstitial pulmonary fibrosis. So to highlight those advances, to put those advances in context, we're gonna take a little trip. Anybody recognize this? Thought it may be a younger crowd. I thought I would have to explain like the DeLorean and the flux capacitor, and you type in 2007, and here we go back just to think about 2007. Easier for some of us to remember than others. It doesn't feel like that long ago to me. And maybe some of us were in pharmacy school, some others in the room. Some of you may have been in, I'm not gonna say elementary school. <laughs> I hope not elementary school, but middle school. Last Harry Potter book was published. Then Senator Barack Obama was running for office. And best halftime show in the history of halftime shows, in my opinion, that's personal bias, that's Prince. iPhones became a thing in 2007. Doesn't feel like that long ago to me. If you were in middle school, maybe you were watching High School Musical. I don't know. Here's a case, and let's go back to 2007 with this case. Viserys is a 64-year-old male, progressive worsening dyspnea upon exertion. He's a former smoker, 20-pack years. Past medical history includes a diagnosis of COPD, hypertension, diverticulitis, and GERD. It's been referred to pulmonology secondary to persistent dyspnea despite adherence to three drug inhaled therapy. Diagnosis of IPF is made and following PFTs, so spirometry, and a high resolution CT after ruling out connective tissue disorders with some lab work. In 2007, it gets a little murky and this is a future slide too, when you talk about the complex course of treatment, what ATS recommended we do for this patient is supportive care. Standard of care may have been considered by some pulmonologists as three-drug therapy anchored in a corticosteroid, nasothioprine. We now know that that care was actually detrimental to these patients, but as little as 15 years ago, we had no good treatment for these patients. Quick summary of what is interstitial lung disease. It's a heterogeneous group of over 200 different rare pulmonary disorders. They share a clinical presentation, a radiographic presentation. It is diffuse parenchymal lung disease, affects the interstitium, blah, blah, blah. Most patients present with progressive dyspnea upon exertion and persistent dry cough. And if you also take the lungs, they're basilar fine crackles that you hear referred to as Velcro crackles. The subset we're gonna focus on today are fibrosing and progressive in nature. There are a bunch of different ways to classify interstitial lung disease. I think the easiest way to classify known causes, which would be exposure-related interstitial lung diseases. Another known cause would be connected tissue disorder-related fibrosis. Unknown causes would be idiopathic, of course, primarily or led by idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And then there are rare causes, so like a sarcoidosis. So when you think about progressive pulmonary fibrosis, this is a subset we're going to 
focus on mostly today because we had to draw a line somewhere and kind of pick what we're going to focus on with 200 different conditions with kind of a myriad of different kind of pathologies. But idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis that you know an audience member named is the kind of prototype, but there are others. And the key thing about these is that they are self-sustaining and it's a pretty rapid deterioration of lung function and quality of life. So these patients are at an increased risk of early death and disability. This is a slide to try to highlight just the plethora of disease states. And you go through and you'll see some that are familiar to you, maybe some that are less so. This is a division that we'll kind of use some today. So some of the interstitial pneumonias, the IIPs at the top, which include idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, but also some that are just unclassifiable. Some of you may recognize like cryptogenic organizing pneumonia and conditions like that. Lots of connective tissue diseases can have developed interstitial lung disease. Some of those are progressive fibrosing, some not. Sarcoidosis is kind of the primary diseases that you think about. It's kind of the one that most people highlight, but there's a lot there. That's where the lymphangioleomyomatosis comes in. And then some of the environmental exposure. So the things we think about like asbestosis and silicosis, but also also things like the hypersensitivity pneumonitis due to mold exposure or other antigens in the environment. So the pathophysiology is usually divided into, is it a fibroproliferative kind of thing, which they all ultimately become those that are progressive fibrosing, but fibroproliferative is kind of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, where we think of it as it's not really a known cause, or there's conditions that have an inflammatory nature, like our connective tissue diseases that it ultimately lead to this fibroproliferative disease. Ultimately, they kind of end up in the same place. It's driven by this kind of chronic injury and then the repair that's kind of runs amok, right? And the fibroblasts are differentiated into myofibroblasts. That's kind of a key piece there. Once that begins to happen, these myofibroblasts excrete this extracellular matrix and that accumulates and then the removal of that is diminished. And what happens, the consequence of that is you kind of get lung stiffening at that point. So this accumulation of the matrix causes these stiffened lung parenchyma. That then perpetuates this process. Once that starts to happen, you get cytokine activation, more myofibroblast activated, and then just it becomes a self-perpetuating process. The diagnostic approach historically, like Andy was talking about, it's multidisciplinary. It involves pathology, radiology, pulmonology, maybe rheumatology. The key thing here with these patients is to take a good history. So, you know, if you're talking with them is an identify antigens that might could be removed if this is a hypersensitivity type condition or identify diseases that may be causing this that have yet undiagnosed. Oftentimes people with interstitial lung diseases may present before their diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis or something like that. So it can sometimes, if you can identify that, then the treatment could be more tailored towards that disease state and have better outcomes. The one thing that I wanted to point out, and we'll have to talk about this and on high resolution CT scans, and I know, you know, none of us are reading CT scans at at least probably not, but in all the clinical trials, they're gonna talk about these subsets of patients. And so you'll most commonly see the UIP pattern, which is a usual interstitial pneumonia pattern. IPF is again, like the prototype. So if you have IPF, you have a UIP pattern. It's associated with like more rapid demise and higher mortality. And there's a non-specific interstitial pneumonia pattern, NSIP. It's more characterized by a ground glass, tends to not be as aggressive as UIP. Both of these are still highly detrimental though. Honeycombing is what's present in the usual interstitial pneumonia pattern. So if you're kind of seeing that, it's other stuff with it like traction bronchiectasis and some reticulation abnormalities, but primarily it's the honeycombing that's the key piece there. The disease progression is usually rapid. It is progressive, like we talked about. The decline at a patient level is quite unpredictable and really challenging to prognosticate. We've done fairly well with kind of identifying patients at a population level that are going to do poorly, but at an individual patient level, that remains to be a challenge. Some features that put people at risk of early death are things like severe physiologic impairment at baseline. So they have a low FVC when they're diagnosed. Do they have extensive disease on the CT, older age, things like that that can put them at a higher risk. The figure on the left is just kind of incorporating all the different measures that we can use to kind of evaluate disease progression. 
This slide I just want to include is like the big overview of kind of these patients. We won't have time to go into everything because we have to kind of, you know, as we said, it's a big disease state. We're trying to introduce people to this that may not know much about it. Obviously, if you identify an antigen, removing that or stopping smoking or key things, vaccinations will be important as well for these patients. Pulmonary rehab is a big deal. That's something we'll talk about kind of at the end with supportive care. And then if they qualify for antifibrotic therapy or immunomodulator therapies, things like that. And then ultimately, most of these patients will need palliative care at some point. The last thing that I wanted to talk about before we got to IPF and Andy leading us through that was the role of pulmonary function testing. And I'm going to take a minute here. I think it's important to understand kind of how this is interpreted because this is going to be the endpoint for most of the trials we talk about. So the FVC, force vital capacity. The thing to keep in mind, I think a lot of people that deal with COPD or asthma, you've heard of FEV1 or the FEV1 to FVC ratio, and maybe you have some understanding for that. But because these diseases are stiffening of lung parenchyma, they are restrictive pattern. They're restrictive airway diseases, not obstructive diseases. So if you think about one way I was describing it to somebody, if you have the framework of like HEF-REF and HEF-PEF, it may be helpful if that's something that you can kind of anchor to. Whereas the obstructive lung diseases, you have mucus hypersecretion or bronchoconstriction that causes impairment of movement of air through the airways, right? So then your ratio of expired volume in one second to your total capacity would be impaired if you have impairment of air moving through the conducting airways. Whereas in restricted disease, you have an impairment of the expansion of the lungs, right? You don't have as big of a vital capacity. So these patients, the movement of air in and out of the lungs is not really impeded, but the ability to take a full deep breath is. So the FVC is the marker that we use. It's not a diagnostic parameter for interstitial lung disease, but it is useful at predicting mortality. So people who have a lower FVC or a more rapid decline in their FVC will have higher rates of mortality. So then our therapeutic goal becomes to reduce the rate of decline of that. You'll see this DLCO sometime, which is diffusing capacity of the lungs for carbon monoxide. It's a useful measure, but we won't talk as much about it. It's more variable than FVC. The guidelines and the FDA recognize it, but FVC is the preferred measure. So the target, most of the endpoints will look at the rate of decline of the FVC. So an annual change from start to end of the FVC, what it is. And if you remember, it's a percent predicted. So when we think about that, it's a percentage but it's often reported as a volume. So when we measured, it's a volume, but my FVC, Andy's, and different people's FVC could be different. So we need to compare that to people who are like us and present it as a percent predicted amount. It's oftentimes presented as a relative change or an absolute change. And if possible, we want to look at absolute changes because the data is best with that. We have the most kind of markers for predicting increased risk of death with absolute declines. So if you think if somebody declines from 50% FVC to 40% predicted, that's a 10% decline, and that's associated with a five-fold increase in mortality, but that's a 20% relative decrease. And so you can see how those numbers could kind of get a bit confusing. So just paying attention to that. The minimum clinically important difference is somewhere probably in the range of 3 to 5%. That's a difference that patients can perceive that impacts quality of life and that would be meaningful in the drug trial that sort of thing to identify is this a meaningful difference or we'd like to talk about is this a clinically significant difference not a statistically significant difference and in 2014 it's worth noting the fda accepted this as like kind of a surrogate marker for mortality and for drug approval trials so this is something you're going to see in all the trials we talk about in any going forward in antifibrotic or immunomodulator therapy trials with the fvc and I just highlighted a few of the areas to look at. Dipsnia is a big issue with these patients. And Andy mentioned, and I've worked with a lot of pulmonary rehab patients. One thing that I do at my practice is at the pulmonary rehab center, we have affiliated with us. I go and speak to the patients about their medications. But one thing I always like to ask them is, you know, what do you think about, like, how are things going? And almost universally, they are all talk about how 
much better they feel. And if you think about it, we have depression down here is the next thing. These patients are limited in their functionality and they're fearful if you've ever been dipsnick. And so if it's going to the grocery store or something, and the last time they, did, they had an event and they got nervous and anxious about it. So the result of that is in they don't do that again, right? And they kind of self-isolate and it perpetuates this cycle of depression and deconditioning and that sort of thing. And so pulmonary rehab gives them that confidence and it kind of conditions them so they can get out in the world and have a better quality of life. So it is, and in my talking with them, truly one of the best things we can do for these patients. Opioids really only when they're kind of at the palliative care standpoint and advanced disease. The cough is troublesome. It's really impactful for quality of life. Treating GERD can help that, but only if GERD exists. We've looked at treating GERD and it's not the thing to do. So if it's there, you can treat it. The antifibrotics and immunomodulators can help pretty well, but then if you have to, you can start throwing things like chromalin or gabapentin or a few things that have been looked at in these patients that may help, but you know, not promising anything there. And the depression and anxiety is real and it has to be addressed. Pulmonary rehab, like we say, can help with that, but they're also probably gonna need antidepressants and things like that. Andy's gonna finish us up with some future directions and close us out. Specific to IPF and future directions, there's a considerable amount of molecular phenotyping ongoing, an attempt to better understand pathophysiology of disease, cell-to-cell -cell signaling, et cetera, so that possibly we can identify a compound and a medication, development medication that is more targeted. Same efficacy as the two antibiotics are greater that we have on the market right now with a decreased adverse effect profile. That is the hope. When we put these slides together, per my count, there were 19 different molecular entities under current investigation in different phases. The most promising, per my view, is BI 101 It is a PDE4 phosphodiesterase 4 B inhibitor. Study was published 2022, June of 2022 of this year in New England Journal. It was a phase two multicenter randomized placebo-controlled trial that exercised Bayesian analysis. 147 patients, so a small sample size, but that's what you'd expect or anticipate from a phase two trial. Primary endpoint was changed from baseline in regard to FVC. Patients were classified as no previous exposure to an antifibrotic, so perfurinone or nintendinib, or prior exposure no prior exposure and prior exposure. So no matter previous use of an antifibrotic, BI's compound slowed the rate of pulmonary decline as indicated by FEC at 12 weeks. It was a short, short period of time, but it is to demonstrate or prove efficacy of a compound. Of note, about 10% of patients discontinued the PDE4B inhibitor prematurely secondary to adverse effects. And the primary adverse effect or the most reported adverse effect was GI upset or diarrhea. That 10% in my opinion, is significant when you look at perfurodone and nintendinib. When you have 20, 25, sometimes even 30% of patients either have a dose reduction or recommendation made in regard to taking with food related to that GI upset or other adverse effects. Same thing with progressive pulmonary fibrosis, non-IPF, plenty of molecular phenotyping going on, maybe to distinguish you know, one idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis condition from another. Multiple medications as monotherapy are in combination or in late phase trials for various PPFs. For sake of time, we'll not go through those. As we're wrapping up, Nathan did touch on some of them. Key takeaways from today's presentation, IPF and PPF are progressive. It is important to recognize interstitial lung diseases typically are certainly the progressive chronic conditions as early as possible, diagnose them and know what treatment options are available as placing a patient on appropriate therapy may possibly prolong their life. In the IPF in particular, greater than the three to five years, it's the median life expectancy post-diagnosis, a slow rate of pulmonary decline as indicated by FVC and percent change in FVC from baseline. FVC is predictive of mortality, lower FVC at diagnosis and faster decline independently associated with increased mortality as written here. Adverse drug reactions are very common, fortunately, with the two antifibrotics that we have on the market. I already mentioned that, almost ad nauseum. In 
IPF specifically in evaluating is it purfinidone, is it nintinidib. We look at comorbid conditions. We take into consideration the risk related to the adverse profile and move on from there. But it's largely trial and error. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to podcasts and check back soon to hear more episodes from the 2022 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Vasileka from ASHP Official and thank you for all you do for your patients.